to another episode of the Urban Futures Podcast. Joining us today in Los Angeles is Travis Longcore. Travis is an environmental scientist and a geographer at the UCLA Institute of Environment and Sustainability. He is also the founder of the Urban Wildlands Group, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to conservation in the area of Los Angeles. Travis is speaking with us today to share his experiences in the field of urban ecology and bioresource management. Travis, why don't we begin by talking about your personal journey and what has it been for you to grow within the field of ecology? I can actually tell a very sort of personal journey kind of uh, uh, story to, to get there. Um, I grew up in the, the state of Maine uh, in the northeast coast of the United States and both of my parents are biologists. So I grew up in a rural landscape, uh, university town, uh, two parents who were biologists, and uh, I kind of wanted to, when I went to college, to get away from it as far as I could, like every kid rebels uh, against their parents. Uh, I spent a year, a gap year, uh, after high school in Sweden, um, and so I have an affinity for the, the Nordic landscapes. And then I went and studied uh, urban geography at the University of Delaware and uh, was into cities. I wanted to see where the action was and what was going on. And I uh, studied urban form and the influence of technology on the location of uh, skyscrapers in downtown New York City. So it didn't get any more urban than that. Um, and I came out here to Los Angeles to study geography at UCLA. Um, and uh, through various reasons uh, having to do with the, I met my girlfriend then and now my wife who's kind of like, why are you interested in this stuff? You know, you, you grew up in Maine with biologist parents. What are you doing here? And, you know, why that? I'm like, oh, well, you know, it seemed interesting. And, and, and I think there was also a concerted effort of some faculty members as well. And I kind of slipped from a master's that was more sort of, the use of science in cultural geography and how we, you know, science goes into policy mm. in our cultural landscapes, and then into a very, very quantitative ecological uh, PhD in biogeography. Um, so I, I came from urban geography through sort of science and society to um, to, to to urban biogeography, and so I took those two things and, and put them together, and we. Um, my now wife and I have this nonprofit called the Urban Wildlands Group, and I have, over the years, spent time in the sort of applied uh, sectors and in the academic sectors and teaching um, at uh, USC uh, recently and now um, back at, at UCLA. You mentioned the Urban Wildlands Group. Let's talk about the project because it's an initiative that you pioneered and it's all about protection of species and habitats in urban areas. Sure, it's a it's a nonprofit that we we founded in the the mid nineteen nineties. It was part of out of frustration um, that the whole attitude at the time was kind of nature's out there, cities are in here, and they don't really mix. And and we thought that in fact that wasn't true, and it wasn't a good attitude for the future because if you treat cities as if they have no nature, and we could see you know even in the mid nineties that the trends were going to be, that the majority of human populations were going to be living in cities. Uh, and if you don't have access to sort of nature in the sense of places that are operating on the climatic and seasonal scale of nature, no one gets educated about it. You think that lawns are always green and trees are always growing and or you know winter comes, but then it, 
unless you have access to those things, you don't necessarily learn about them. And for a place like California that's so diverse, has such diversity of habitats, and has so many endangered species, if you don't do urban conservation, you actually can't do conservation for some of the major groups like insects. So for example, in the city of Los Angeles, in fact, if you flew in and out of Los Angeles International Airport, you flew over a habitat for an endangered butterfly that's like mm. right at the end of the runways. There's a remnant dune system. The Santa Monica Bay, that dunes is, that's where the El Segundo dunes, that's where that butterfly is and nowhere else. So if you don't do urban conservation in California, and I would bet, and I've seen, there have been papers subsequent that have documented this, and you don't do this around the world, you can't actually do species conservation if you don't do urban conservation. So that's how we got into that. And we, so we do targeted advocacy issues. Um, we developed a whole you know, area of inquiry about the effects of lights on, on ecosystems. Uh, we looked at the issues of feral cats and their management, all these sorts of thorny things, butterflies, raisin-endangered butterflies, um, and, but all built around this thing that then got institutionalized in a way in the United States through the National Science Foundation's um, uh, urban uh, long-term uh, research uh, sites in Baltimore and Phoenix. Um, and, and so that was you know, in the, in the late-ish 90s. Uh, and that, so that's really sort of taken off uh, since then, the sort of urban turn in, in ecology. When you intervene in a space like the city of Los Angeles and you create this island of buildings and high-rises, what exactly are the implications in the landscape and the geography of the space? Yeah, so well, I mean, LA is a great question for this because, yeah. uh, you know, in some areas of the world, you have a pretty sort of, I won't call it monotonous, but uniform landscape that you're going into. You're like, it's coniferous forest. And you have wetlands and streams and rivers and whatnot around it, and there's variability within that, but it's pretty much all coniferous forest, you kind of get that. Mm -hmm. And the thing is about a, a Los Angeles, or even a, a California in general, is there's this diversity of, of, of habitats. And, and so, originally on the landscape, and I say originally, and not to erase the fact that Los Angeles was occupied by Native Americans for 10,000 years, before the Spanish show up. So we've got you know 20,000 maybe people, 5,000, I don't know the exact number, living here in this basin for 10,000 years, different groups coming in, replacing each other, burning, cultivating oak trees, harvesting the annual plants that grew on the prairies. Um, and then we get this massive transformation with the Spanish and into a, a landscape of, of uh, production of cattle, uh, basically sheep and cattle. And so, yeah, it's, Wildly different, and, and this actually is an area that, that I've tried to deal with in, in my research of historical ecology, to understand what it is we've actually erased on the landscape as we've developed the city, to be able to sort of inform and inspire, not dictate, but inform and inspire the choices that we make for restoration and, and ecological management going forward. So um, it, what it means is to, there's a lot of complexity to understanding both the human and natural systems prior to widespread agriculture and urbanization uh, that we probably ought to understand to understand the biology, the ecology of the species, um, how things work within the climate, um, and then um, also uh, what things were missing the most. Talking about that, uh, the past sort of structures, uh, 
Um, we happened to uh, listen recently a lecture uh, by Peter Senge, who used to work here for a long time. He's a professor of uh, social learning business. Uh, he's very well known about his work on learning organizations. But he has been kind of a deploying more this kind of a systemic view. And he said that he's, he grew in Los Angeles back in the uh, 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And when the Los Angeles of his youth was a place where he just remembers endless uh, lemon and orange groves. And then he saw those things disappearing in the front of his eyes. And he was thinking, what is happening? What's going on here? Why, why this is this happening and why no one seemed to be bothered by that? Uh, and then he, and this, this is how the story goes, he goes to his mother when he's about 17 or 18 and said, Hey, Mama, I think I, I understood what's the problem here. And, and the Mama then, okay, what's the problem? And he says, yeah, well, it's interdependence. Uh, and he had been thinking in his own mind that, you know, there must be this cod connection, some explicit, some hidden connections that has happened. And as a result of all those, we see these uh, spaces uh, with lemon growth and orange growth disappearing in the front of our eyes. Um, so um, the point here is that that happened. No, nobody intended to do that. It just happened as a result of other inspirations that were around. Now the same applies actually when you think about, uh, you know, these habitats that have been there in the past, then comes a, a time <laughs> when uh, something else is in the people's minds and intentions and they start to go along those lines. And, and then as a as an unintended consequence, something happens uh, that nobody intended, but that happens, which in this case was that these this, this growths were disappearing. Now, when, uh, when, when we think about uh, how to reverse this trend, when we think about how to bring back those habitats, and probably they are not anymore lemon and, and orange habitats, that would be something totally different, but would kind of uh, intensify uh, the presence of different species in, in the region. Where would you have your kind of a starting point looking at that? Maybe taking into account this historical perspective that you were also referring to earlier. You know, you're getting at the idea of how many things happen without plan. Yeah. Um, and the and the fact that those orange groves replaced croplands, probably, uh, or bean fields, maybe, yeah. um, or grazing land before that. Mm -hmm. And the grazing land was replacing, with exotic European grasses, the forb fields that were there before that. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these, I, I mean, the, an economist would say, well, there's a pretty clear explanation about land value and, mm -hmm. and sort of mm -hmm. economic incentives and all those sorts of things. And I think the challenge here for somebody who cares about um, sort of nature for itself um, is to, that it's very difficult sometimes to get those economic values to drive the things that you might want to see done, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
and this is why doing nature stuff in cities, I think, inherently has to be interdisciplinary to, to capture some of the incentives uh, and recognize some of the values. And I think it ultimately definitely has to come through government intervention to recognize those values and provide the money to mm -hmm. do things, even if it's through things like a bond issue for clean water. But our bond issues for clean water projects can also do habitat restoration mm -hmm. because yeah. we people are willing to recognize politically in the body politic that we need to have clean water and deal with stormwater and flooding, mm -hmm. but then you can actually reduce stormwater and flooding by converting some of these European grassland weed fields that are now exactly. owned as public parks and convert them to shrublands mm -hmm. uh, because they have deeper root zones and all these sorts of so they mm -hmm. so so there's there's ways in which you can with an interdisciplinary knowledge and view and creativity can sort of see where some of those incentives might be and guide projects in those directions. Mm -hmm. um, not to go back to a particular time in the past, but to identify qualities of the environment that you want to enhance mm -hmm. uh, and figure out ways to enhance them that are consistent with the, the climate, the future climate, mm -hmm. Um, and the fact that we live in, uh, you know, what is a, per a habitat for humans. Mm -hmm. And so some of the work gets into, you know, not quote-unquote restoring, but increasing overall ecological natural function by, say, investing in street trees in neighborhoods that are built in places that historically would have only supported uh, forb fields and a scattered sagebrush. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, this is now a human habitat, and we can actually improve the value of that as a, say, uh, wintering spot for birds that migrate up to Canada uh, by using a set of tree species that are going to produce the, and support the insects that they want to forage mm -hmm. on. And at the same time, get that motivated politically and socially by recognizing that our first line of defense in this city against extreme heat days, which is our major stressor coming under you know, climate change scenarios, mm -hmm. um, is our first line of defense is, is trees. That's trees right. are democratic, they shade everybody, they, you know, <laughs> but, it, but we have to get them in every neighborhood uh, for them to work that way. And so we can start looking at these things across and slice them across different sort of incentive universes you know, to use an economics <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of idea or or sort of different future visions um, to figure out the ones where they can overlap and you can make progress and know which ones to push on and which ones you can't push on from an advocate's perspective because mm. I won't kid you that I'm not also an advocate you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think you kind of have to if you're paying attention to the world today uh, and caring about these things, caring about the future of yeah. species, people, cities together, you kind of yeah. have to be an advocate on top yeah, of that. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah. so is, is there an overarching vision that Los Angeles has for uh, integrating nature in the city at the moment? Great question. Um, Los Angeles has historically not been particularly biodiversity aware. Uh, so I'll tell you a little history here. Uh, used to be the only ecologists and biologists in the city were uh, people who were doing compliance and mitigation, following the law, 
Uh, and people who were dealing with the Santa Monica Bay because we had a sewage treatment plant that was dumping waste into the bay. Uh, and that became a cause celeb, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Um, and maybe I've lost track of time, maybe it was longer. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and, and, and cleaning up the bay. So there were biologists in the, the wastewater management side in the city. But in terms of leadership, Anybody, if you would go to anybody in the city, you know, a decade ago and say how many endangered species live in the city of Los Angeles, you would have gotten a blank look like we have endangered species and maybe they'd think of the one at the airport and they'd probably forget the endangered butterfly down by the port. Um, and so there was a city council member uh, some years ago, maybe it was five years ago now, who wanted to do something about biodiversity. Because there's some pressures here. We have the hills, uh, we have... Uh, wildlife in the hills, there's mountain lion, there's bobcat, there's coyotes, and people, these are charismatic, and there's, you know, sort of a growing zeitgeist around, sort of paying attention to these things in cities. And they put together a little committee to do a biodiversity motion, to do something about biodiversity in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, and I think it's wonderful that they put it together. I was there at some of these meetings, and it, it, it didn't seem to have a whole lot of structure and a direction. Mm -hmm. And I made the sort of modest suggestion that we join the rest of the world that's looked at this question already. And I proposed to the, the group that we, instead of trying to change everything at the outset, we simply measure. Because measuring is the first step to getting feedback, and mm -hmm. getting feedback is the first step to change. And agreeing on what to measure is even a challenge because not everybody values the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so just agreeing to measure something mm -hmm. would be a really great first step. And in fact, there's an index called the Singapore Index for Urban Biodiversity mm -hmm. that you can use that's already been developed and adopted by other cities and other places, international uh, you know, structure. So let's be the first biggest city in uh, the United States mm -hmm. to adopt the Singapore Index and go forward with it. Um, and that got some traction. And so mm -hmm. it, it went through some modifications, some things added to it, but ultimately that idea was put forward by a council member, got through the council, was signed by the mayor, and then given to the sanitation department to implement because that's what biologists are. Uh, remember the biologists yeah. from, the, from dumping stuff into the bay? Um, great people. And so there's now the Los Angeles Biodiversity Report um, that, that integrates these things. And there's some stuff that's straight up native biodiversity. There's also the recognition of the value of nature in urban forestry. There's the value in education. There's the num like number of programs to be, so you're familiar with this. And that to me, um, and being able to have that report and point to it is the beginnings of an organization of a coherent structure for the city could now start folding mm -hmm. in like what's going on over in street tree division. It's mm -hmm. in a completely different part of the city. Mm -hmm. It's under, you, you know, uh, public works in a different area, mm -hmm. street services instead of sanitation and environment. And, but that's the kind of thing where we're starting to measure. There was a, a heavy emphasis, I think, on LA also wanting to sort of develop our own metrics beyond the Singapore index to deal with equity. Um, so what's going on in the poorest neighborhoods versus the richest neighborhoods, uh, which I think is completely 100% appropriate and it's what we're doing. Uh, and we need, frankly, nature education in the rich neighborhoods and the poor neighborhoods um, because you know, knowledge of how the world works naturally is no longer a prerequisite for success. Yeah. I mean, to be a good farmer, you had to know that the birds came and ate the insects. To be a good stockbroker, 
you don't even have to know that there's different species of birds. Um, and, and it's so, you know, we need education across the board and integration across neighborhoods, across the, uh, you know, geographic regions of the city that have different social, you know, profiles. Yes, and I think you did some work in the past developing measures and indicators. Could you say some words about that? Um, yes, <laughs> uh, around uh, indices, uh, indicator species to assess Um, sort of urban nature performance. This was a thing called the Green Visions Plan for 21st Century Southern California. Big project funded by state conservancies, most of Los Angeles County, some into the county to the north and the county to the south. Um, and, and again, this is the idea of measuring and pointing to these things that we could, that weren't so rare that they wouldn't be anywhere, but weren't so common that they would be everywhere. And so, mm -hmm. for example, there's a, a California quail has a great call that people can recognize. People who grew up in Los Angeles you know, 40 years ago would know it, and it's becoming rarer and rarer. Uh, and so being able to identify species that are going to indicate kind of native quality that can tolerate some urbanization if we steward it well, mm -hmm. um, and maybe can be reintroduced and whatnot. And this is all about sort of picking the, the the right battles to fight in terms of biodiversity in the city. I'm not mm -hmm. going to, even though there used to be grizzly bears on the beach mm -hmm. in Santa Monica, I'm not proposing or no one would propose that we bring, try to bring grizzly bears back. Um, <laughs> but you can look at mm -hmm. bird diversity, you know, in, in small fragments or butterflies mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. salamanders or snails or all these sorts of things that people can interact with lizards that people can interact with and see and whatnot. And you know, we're sitting here at the Natural History Museum that's really been leading the way uh, in terms of engaging the community around these things and in, in, in this environment. And I still think there's a value, even though there's this, I think, a, a misguided idea that there's a, a, a debate over the value of native species. Um, I strongly believe that we need to concentrate on and promote our native species because that's what gives place its character Um, you know, that the, we've looked to them to understand the landscape that we live in. Uh, now, of course, it doesn't mean I'm going to try to get rid of every exotic species, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. but to have that as a focus is really a connection. It's, it's placemaking. Mm -hmm. um, and even though American cities in general are melting pots, mm -hmm. uh, and you have people from all around the world, I do think it's still important because those species represent... The, the, the ecology and the climate and the way of the place uh, that you can then start tuning into. Like, it's the springtime, this butterfly is going to fly, it's the summer, that one's going to fly, it's the fall, oh my goodness, it's so hot and dry, nothing's out there. You know, that's the environment we live in, and as we start paying attention to our native species, we can see those changes and understand them relative to the decisions that we make about modifying that landscape and managing that landscape for our, our human uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, is that... Uh, when, it, when this whole thing about promoting, I would say, ecological worldview to the urban policies, the question is, what are the types of argument that you can use to convince this, not only protecting, but actually enhancing, making some active moves towards enhancing the biodiversity. In your experience, what are the best arguments? And of course, I might know that economic value yet that you can, but, but there is much more to that, uh, uh, of course. But 
according to your experience, what are those arguments that uh, sort of um, may hit home in these yeah. type of the debates? Um, that's a great question because it's so hard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even the, so take the economic part. I did a study some years ago trying to figure out you know, ecosystem service values, it was you know, 15 years ago or something, for trees in dense urban neighborhood. It's like, okay, there's this value for air quality and this value for water quality and whatnot. But the thing is, there's no mechanism to get the people who manage the stormwater to pay you to grow trees to reduce their stormwater. So you can say there's a value in terms of stormwater, mm -hmm. but amazingly, there's no mechanism mm -hmm. to connect the two together. Yeah. And you can't go over to the air quality you know, folks yeah. and say, hey, give me $7 a year for the ozone that this tree removed. They just, it's just not there. So we, we, can, we can make, you can make those economic arguments at the mm -hmm. policy level, like mm -hmm. you should support this urban forestry plan because it does this. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you're right, it's sort of a facile answer that it's going to turn mm -hmm. on economics. Yeah. Um, I think, on the other hand, you know, policymakers are completely immune, I think, to sort of emotional appeals. Mm. Um, this yeah. is a beautiful so-and-so, you should say it. Mm. Uh, so what gets us in between is, yeah. so the funding comes from having, because ultimately, how do you protect land in the United States? You, you, you kind of have to buy it, right? There's, <laughs> it's because the rights of private property owners are significant, uh, and the ability to develop a property if you own it is, mm -hmm. is, is almost inviolate. Um, then the way that you can protect uh, natural things is either convince people they want to integrate it into their project. So that's sort of the soft sell around, uh, and this goes into the whole sort of landscape architecture and garden side, is the benefits to you as a uh, uh, person developing an office park or a uh, retirement home of integrating wildlife-friendly features so that your people are happier, have lower stress, take fewer sick days, uh, use fewer medications, whatnot. So this whole realm of environmental psychology uh, that goes back to maybe Roger Ulrich in the, in the 70s and looking at the brick wall versus the green out the hospital window. You know, there's like metric tons of literature after that that all let you argue, if you put it in the right people's hands, to argue for wildlife and nature-friendly design inside of, of new city projects. And so this is one of the things that I've done a lot with uh, students in architecture, landscape architecture, building science, et cetera, say, and even out in consulting with people who are in practice, and say, these are the arguments to convince your clients why you should be wildlife-friendly in your project. Yeah. Um, so that's one, because, and you don't necessarily have to put a value on it, although it's useful to be able to say X number of mm. six, sick days and this much less stress and quicker recovery after a bubble. You can sort of start to cite these, the psychological part. The other part is um, this whole multiple benefits thing for urban you know, landscapes, which would be recreation um, and, and, and undoing, in the particular case of Los Angeles, and I'm sure other places as well, but undoing the systematic inequalities in access to natural open space between rich and poor communities, and also between you know, communities that are predominantly African-American and, and Latinx uh, and white communities, because 
there's huge disparities there. And so we're at a moment now where this is being sort of recognized and appreciated much more. And you can motivate funding around that. So for example, the most recent park bond for the county of Los Angeles was built around um, undoing inequalities in access to green space. Mm-hmm. Based on an analysis that we actually pioneered in that study, the Green Visions Plan, looking at the, the sort of areas around parks and how many people were served by each park. This was Jennifer Walsh who led that, who's now up at, uh, now the outgoing dean of, at uh, Berkeley in College of Environmental Design. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the, that's the heart of the most recent funding mechanism. Yeah. Um, and then, so for example, I'm also working, just did a project with... Um, uh, the, uh, this thing called the Los Angeles Regional Open Space and Affordable Housing Coalition. Mm-hmm. So open space and affordable housing together because mm-hmm. what the open space funders are finding is they go in to sort of create you know, green amenities of various kinds in areas that traditionally were underserved by those amenities is they end up turning into the, the, the tip of the sphere of gentrification. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, they, so, so people come in and they invest in these amenities along the river, uh, greening the river, whatever, forget for a minute whether it's restoration or not, it's just greening, making things nice. And then all of a sudden, people who have lived in a neighborhood for three generations are priced out. Uh, and so this coalition's gotten together uh, and plans around partnering with open space investment with affordable housing projects that are going to stay affordable. Like, not market rate after 20 years or anything like this is like permanent mm-hmm. affordable housing so that when they do the investments in the, in the neighborhood that's been underserved they're partnering it with in various different typologies maybe on the same site maybe a network of sites they're partnering it with uh, investment in affordable housing at the same time mm-hmm. uh, which is I think really interesting sort of thing it's an anti-gentrification strategy so that investment in greening a city doesn't just turn into uh, green gentrification, yeah. right? And it's like, okay, we're gonna green the city and all you folks, poor folks who live in these neighborhoods that didn't have parks and didn't have you know, nice yeah. alleys mm-hmm. and all that stuff, you can go live somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? That, that cannot be the way we go about this, yeah. Um, so. Yeah. A lot of cities are actually sharing uh, the same issues when it comes to uh, gentrification and inequality at all levels, right? You, you see it in physical space, but then mm-hmm. it sort of transpires into other areas. Um, but before that, you mentioned all these arguments. Out of all this, um, what do you think are the one, the one that has resonated the most? Um, I think there's no substitute for actual regulation by an enlightened government. Now, that presumes an enlightened government. We have a national government that's systematically disassembling every regulation possible and not enforcing the ones that they haven't that disassembled. But we have regulations at other, at other levels. The, at the end of the day, as long as you have a free market economy that allows for land speculation, and this is something that my you know, partner, Catherine Rich, um, has brought up to me and we've discussed a lot, as long as you have this land speculation, it's really hard to maintain these things. It takes, it takes actual regulation with actual teeth and actual policies, and it takes, in, the, in this country, ownership, public ownership or restricted private ownership in order to not 
have all these efforts undermined uh, by the increasing land values. Uh, and so in many senses, this is already sort of the gentrification of Los Angeles has already been happening in that the, the poorest neighborhoods, communities have already been displaced inland into desert cities and along with many of the social issues that go with it. So it's about the economics, the sort of social safety net and structure uh, where having, as I say, having lived in Scandinavia, uh, there's no, we just, we just don't have the commitment as a society um, to a level playing field or even a safety net, even if you didn't have a level playing field. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe it would be also interesting, I mean, you, you have another a country in the same continent as Canada, and if you compare the, the type of the policies that they have been doing there, uh, um, I'm not too familiar with that scene, but what I've seen in my own uh, visits to Vancouver and Montreal and those places, they seem to uh, have sort of a rather sort of a progressive note on those, particularly Vancouver, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's a good example of that, uh, which is a big city um, and, and, and to some extent a bit sort of a suffocated, but they have taken a lot of care of this, taking care of the, 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 the habitats, the environment and, and so forth. So. So when you when you when you when when we come back to uh, Los Angeles, I mean this this is a this is a fastly growing city. This is a this is the probably the most vibrant city that there is now in a, in a, in the whole of the uh, the continent, more or less. The economic figures show that this is actually growing in size. And 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 we know what, what that means. That the land is probably coming more pressures in the future, mm -hmm. even more. So what you were just saying was that okay, you know, what is the way that we can preserve? Means that well, we need to have basically two means: economic means, which means that you need to buy. Somebody needs to buy land that has this kind of higher. Um, uh, kind of appreciation for that land, for those uh, uh, values and, 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 and objectives we're talking about here, or that you have a totally new set of regulation that enables this, this preservation to happen. Um, I was just yeah. uh, sorry to interject, but you know, the, the other mechanism that can affect change is, mm. of course, uh, the insurance industry. So, uh, coastal insurance, coastal. So, if we look at you know the future of Los Angeles, how does what is this happening? Yeah. As when the insurers stop insuring the coastal properties, then there's going to be a managed retreat strategy. It'll either be the very wealthy who can self-insure, uh, but mm -hmm. you know there's going to be so there's there's other economic things that can make change mm -hmm. across the landscape. But when we start thinking about growth, you know, and this is, it's hard because we have a global economy that's based on growth. Um, it is basically a fossil fuels bender that we're on and we haven't gotten off yet. The whole growth model, the whole population growth model, all of that is, from an ecologist's perspective, utterly unsustainable, right? Mm -hmm. And every prediction is that we're going to either level off in the next 100, 125 mm -hmm. years um, and maybe stabilize or we'll hit a peak and we'll, you know, decline. Mm -hmm. um, and so my question that I've been... <laughs> Posing as a thought experiment, never 
gotten everybody in the room to sort of work on it yet is we're closer to a, either a steady state or a shrinking Los Angeles than we are to the founding of Los Angeles. And we're a young city. And every other city around the world at this point is definitely closer, you know, 125 years for a European city to steady state or declining global population. If we, if we trust the demographers mm -hmm. and, 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 and the sort of transitions that are going on. So why, instead of constantly thinking about how we're going to get more and more people into a particular area, recognize that's a temporary trend and there's some sort of number that is going to be sustainable in the long run in conditions that are, whatever the conditions are in 125, 50, 200 years, yeah. uh, and start having discussions about what kind of a human occupation of this place, whatever place it is, Turku or Los Angeles, mm -hmm. what kind of human occupation of this place is going to be going on um, from the demographic transition to stability onward. Mm -hmm. So if we need to, so if we say, even if we say we're going to take a disproportionate number of the, the people that are born from now to 125 years mm -hmm. from now, and they're going to be in Los Angeles, uh, what is that number? Let's, let's just let's pick one, let's put some error bars around it, and then look at this place and say, how will we have water sustainability? How will we have energy sustainability? How will we have food sustainability? How will we have biodiversity maintenance? How will we have quality of life? You know, because one of the you know, interesting history of Los Angeles, we don't have a lot of big parks because it was built with small houses on lot, private lots, every which of, had a garden. Mm. So it was always private mm -hmm. open space in Los Angeles. It was laid out that way. This is why there's no big central parks and whatnot until you know, Griffith gives us Griffith Park, but that's not the same thing. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, it, it was built around garden apartments and gardens in the back and a fruit tree in the back and everybody had open space because there was space between houses. And now we take those and we turn them into lot line to lot line with no green infrastructure. That's right. right? But so this is, this is my, my thought experiment for everybody is let's do a plan. Let's envision this steady state city. Let's um, be optimistic that humans can maintain the population that we're going to be at in 125 years. Um, and that, that we're not going to have to decline precipitously because we're transitioning off of fossil fuels uh, to save the planet from, you know, completely boiling. Um, and, and talk about what those cities look like. What's the sea level going to be? What are these different elements? And get ourselves out of the politician mindset of short-term plan after short-term plan, all of which include grow, 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 mm. right? Because if we just assume that LA is going to grow forever, it's not going to be a very nice place to live. Um, and, it's, and if you do it with unconstrained sort of economics, it's going to be like Monaco. <laughs> so and so let's, let's look at it that way. And I think we could apply yeah. that concept to other cities, other places, you know, big and small, mm. to really do that sort of future visioning mm. um, and, and take mm. these real trends seriously outside of the immediate, mm -hmm. you know, I got to build this, I got to yeah. build that. I Reaction to that, yeah. Mm. yeah. So the disproportions are enlarging the, the, the gap in how to integrate also nature in the city of Absolutely. Yeah. landscape. And I'll take a, a California example for a minute. You probably heard about this bill uh, in the California legislature, SB 50, which would have eliminated all the zoning around high frequency transit stops and places mm -hmm. with good jobs. And if you looked at the map, this would be statewide. And it would all the plans for every neighborhood in Los Angeles would be out the window, 
because they're all close to transit and they're all high job areas by this statewide standard. Yeah. And then they would be able to build basically lot line to lot line with no consideration. It didn't deal with setbacks for vegetation. It didn't deal with the park infrastructure. It didn't deal with like it's like we're going to solve the housing crisis by letting anybody build anything anywhere that's near anything to transit. Um, eight stories, four stories, whatever it might be. Complete massive transformation. And it was, so far, it'll come back. Mm -hmm. um, it was defeated for the moment. And supported by many good, quote unquote, liberal people mm -hmm. uh, who thought this is the way to solve, solve um, housing. Mm -hmm. But that's a, it's like every complex question has a simple solution and it's wrong. And this is one of those that doesn't take into account all these issues that we're talking about. How do you have a quality of life? How do you have a green infrastructure? How do you have a, even a water infrastructure and an energy infrastructure and whatnot to support these things? These are hard things that have to be done at a local level. Um, Absolutely. And this is why you know, many, uh, if not all, of the uh, you know, renters, tenants, uh, rights organizations, and community-based organizations, and advocates, and housing advocates didn't like this approach. Mm. Um, because it basically is a, a developer giveaway. Travis, you have done extensive research in the field of light pollution. You actually published a book called Ecological Consequences of Artificial Night Lighting. Why don't you give us the takeaways there? Sure. So we've been working on the effects of lights on species and habitats and ecosystems for a while now, <laughs> shall we say. Uh, got going back in uh, 2002, Catherine and I uh, convened a conference, the first international conference on, on artificial night lighting and wildlife. And out of that book came out of it um, and been working on it, on it ever since. And um, yeah, the takeaways are that the thing that you imagine is the case, which is other species are disturbed by lights at night in their habitats, is, is actually true. Um, and it goes beyond the things that people are maybe familiar with, which is baby sea turtles or hatchling sea turtles that are you know disoriented when they come out uh, from their nest, or birds that are attracted to a light and, and uh, collide with the, a window. That it goes far beyond that to uh, interspecies interactions and sub sort of sublethal effects that affect the distribution of species across the. The, uh, the globe, and there's been a sort of an explosion, I would say, in the last six, seven years uh, of research and publication on this topic, and there's major research groups uh, in, uh, in Europe, in, in the Netherlands, in the UK, in Exeter, in, in uh, uh, Spain, in Italy, etc. Uh, there's a fellow working on some of the, the uh, economics and, and, uh, of it in, in uh, Helsinki. Uh, so, um, so it's, it's it's what you would expect. It sort of con confirms uh, something you might uh, already already believe. And what I've been working on recently is is about the the mitigation efforts because part of the challenge is we've also had this huge technological transformation uh, from older lighting technologies to LEDs, light emitting diodes, that are much more energy efficient. And because of that, to get the economics, and this is something Chris Kaiba uh, in Germany has been talking about, is it's something called the rebound effect. When something gets cheaper, people mm -hmm. use more of it. Uh, so we have this sort of massive overlighting that goes on because light's so cheap uh, with LEDs. Uh, but I think that there's a huge opportunity with LEDs if we do them right. 
and we can figure out ways to negotiate the things so you can have safety uh, of, and, and commerce and all these sorts of things, but minimize the adverse impacts. And those are about the intensity of lights, the direction of lights, the spectrum, which I've been working on a lot, um, and ways to avoid the sensitive areas of the spectrum for other species while allowing for enough human vision to be safe. Um, or t and, 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 and then communicating that out to the people making decisions, uh, which exactly. is the, sort of the closing of the loop on the research side. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there a higher uh, cost associated with this, uh, with these changes in lighting fixtures? And the, the kinds of things that I proposed? So uh, it, you, this, is, this is something that's actually been changing because early on in the history of LEDs, they were made from a blue LED that had a phosphor on it, and so it was very blue, cold, white light. Um, and to get something that would have been like yellow and red and warmer, that's much more friendly for wildlife in general, there was like a 40% energy penalty. That has changed, and the industry has moved such that you can get a, a more yellow, warm colored light that's maybe only 3% less efficient than a bright white light. So there's no reason, given the benefits both to other species and to human circadian rhythms, because mm -hmm. we're also exposed to these things. Anytime you're exposed to blue during the nighttime, it's telling your body that it's daytime, and it extends the time, how long it takes you to go to sleep. There's all these sorts of things that are, that are going on with human health as well. For a 3% energy uh, penalty, we mm. should be able to go ahead and, and do the right thing. And, and this, is, this research on spectrum, we just uh, have, have gotten uh, some tools out there to try to get this in the hand of lighting designers. I consult the lighting people um, mm. and try to make these changes so that there can, you can get, mm. if it's not win-win, at least it's less harm win <laughs> yeah. or, or much better win. Well, you can see actually that there are lots of uh, kind of a, almost like a low-hanging fruits. I mean, because people are using much too much of the lights and uh, even if it's if it's cheap it still costs something mm -hmm. and if you if you can cut that price plus that you know that you're doing also something good for the environment at times it's um it's one of those things that uh, to me looks like a lot like a, you know kind of awareness issues people just mm -hmm. don't think about it yes. they are kind of yeah. on the robots yeah. going and, through their behaviors and, and not changing preconceived notions about what is safe and what is beautiful yeah because I can't drive down a road without going okay that lights glaring and it's it's you know it's not helping your safety because it's going in your eye your eye can only adapt to the brightest thing in the mm. field so the shadows are darker when you've got direct glare mm. and so and it's the wrong color and it, and it's like but these are aesthetic things people think that are cultural things people think oh I'm safe because I have this really bright light outside mm. actually there's no evidence that you are any safer <laughs> Um, and, and, and even if your idea is security, you can mm -hmm. do much better job than people generally do. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about this topic is one, when you, get, when you can do a mitigation, the light's gone. There's no cleanup, you know, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no you know, remediation mm -hmm. for the old light pollution. Um, but the number of individual decision makers you have to reach to mm -hmm. make a difference is huge. And this is where sort of both sort of social awareness and education, policy, and also sort of working with people who are in charge of infrastructure, so street lighting systems. Yeah. So it's like commercial lighting is, is a large contribution. Uh, sports fields are a huge contribution when they're on, but they tend to go off at a certain time. 
um, streetlight systems, uh, big contribution. And so getting those to be right is a big deal. Uh, and then every, you know, the millions and millions of decisions that individuals make. We just, we're in the middle of a study right now looking at the lights along the beach, uh, the sort of land water interface here in, in Southern California, and figuring out what the drivers are for conditions on the beach where we have some endangered species, like mm -hmm. um, a bird, the western snowy plover. Mm -hmm. There's this fish that breeds on the mm -hmm. beach. It's an incredible thing that comes up onto the sand and lays its eggs and all yeah. that. And so we're trying to connect those two. First, we had to measure. Uh, and then we'll be able to say, is it these lights right here that are the maintenance yard that mm -hmm. are driving the signal? Or is it the sky glow from the city? Maybe we can make things better by identifying and regulating things right on the beach mm -hmm. first, and then we start dealing and reaching out to uh, neighboring communities and, and whatnot. And so there's, there's strategies that we can do, and in a sense it's an optimistic mm -hmm. thing, because as I said, once you make the change, it's done. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can see it uh, pretty much immediately. This concludes our episode, Urban Biography, Restoring Ecology in the City, the case of Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. See you next time.